John 15, verse 18, through chapter 16, verse 4. So the end of chapter 15, the beginning of chapter 16. This is, again, Jesus teaching his disciples as he is on the eve of his betrayal after Judas has left, and as he is instructing them, uh, he has spoken of how he is the vine and they are the branches. In other words, he's spoken of your relation to Jesus, that you should abide in him, and in abiding in him, you may bear fruit. You are, he is the vine, you are the branches, so abide in him by faith. He's also spoken of your relation to one another as fellow branches, that you are to love one another as he has loved you, that that is his command for his disciples, um, even as he has laid down his life even for his friends. Well, now in this passage we'll read today, we'll find your relation to the world. So he's already spoken of your relation to Jesus, to abide in him, your relation to one another as fellow disciples, to love one another. And now he is going to speak of your relation to the world, to know that the world has hatred towards Christ and also for his people. So let us read verses 18 through chapter 16, verse 4. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when the, their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray for his blessing. Dear God, we thank you for warning us and instructing us that we might abide in Christ and be saved. We pray that you would cause our hearts to hold fast to these truths, to teach us that we might remember these things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We have in the beginning of chapter 16 
Jesus saying why he's teaching us these things, why he is telling us these things. Jesus warned his disciples of the world's hatred so that they would not fall away. Or to put it more directly, Jesus warns you of the world's hatred so that you will not fall away. The word there for falling away is for to to stumble. Uh, It's usually used with the idea of of apostasy, of falling away. There's times where someone might partially fall away and and return through repentance, but especially in view here is is not stumbling and so as to fall. Of course, in any case, any kind of falling away, Jesus wants to prevent and we should try to avoid. And why is, what, what is he telling us so that we might not fall away? He's warning us to expect hatred from the world, to not be taken off guard and discouraged and so to despair. Think of uh, an army that is composed of raw recruits, of people who've never fought before. And they go in with idealistic hopes that if they just march onto the battlefield, all the armies, enemy armies will flee. And then the armies that oppose them start fighting back and they get scared and they run away because they were not sufficiently prepared. Well, Jesus wants to prepare his disciples to expect opposition, to expect difficulty so that they might be able to stand, so that you might be able to stand when that experience takes place. Certainly this trial does not come to every believer in the same way or even to the same intensity. The apostles themselves certainly were to experience this uh, very directly and intensely in their lives. But this is also an experience that's true, but in principle and to some degree to all disciples of the Lord Jesus. And he gives an explanation for it in this passage. Why would the world hate disciples of Christ? Why should we be prepared for this? Why would this take place? Well, in explaining it, he is also preparing his disciples to make sense of it so that they might endure. The first point is that the world hated Jesus first. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. You would not be the first person to experience this. You would, your Lord suffered the same hostility. Can you think of when Jesus suffered any hatred? Did Jesus suffer any? Did anyone ever hate Jesus? Yes. <laughs> Some people hated him very much. In fact, what did they do to him because they hated him? They killed him. They hated him that much. And not just one person here or there, right? Crowds, leaders, powerful people from low to high. There were people who hated Jesus. Did Jesus do any wrong? Was there any cause for their hatred? No. No. But they hated him nonetheless. Even though he was perfect and righteous and wise, he was hated and he was crucified. Because the hatred was not because Jesus had, was a, was a, had come for any other reason than but to, to save sinners, right? Jesus came to do good for sinners. But they were of the world. They were of the flesh. They were in rebellion 
against God. And therefore they had enmity, hatred towards the Son of God, towards Jesus Christ. And so Jesus endured hostility from sinners. He endured hostility from the world, from fallen humanity. And when the world hates you, when you suffer for righteousness' sake and for his name's sake, you are suffering, you are, in, you are walking in his footsteps. You are walking a well-trodden path. That Jesus has gone through this before you. That's an encouragement, first of all, to know that you're not alone, that you're not the only one who has suffered in this way. But it's also to, to look to Jesus as the object of your faith, that he's the one who will save you, that he is more powerful than the world. He is more powerful than the one who is in the world. He casts out the ruler of this world. But also to look to Jesus as the example for your endurance, that you follow in his footsteps, and he is put before you an example that you might walk as he did, to look to the joy that is set before you, to not return evil for evil, but to bear with it patiently, resting upon the will of God, entrusting your soul to your heavenly Father. Jesus goes on to describe in this vein, in this sense, that the world hated Jesus first, that a servant is not greater than his master. Is a servant greater than his master? No, a servant is not greater than his master. And neither is a disciple greater than his Lord. The disciples were not greater than Jesus, right? And yet Jesus suffered the world's hatred. And so who are we to expect to escape it? We're not above it. We're not too high for that. Just as Christ's disciples were not above serving one another, if our Lord himself washed the feet of his disciples, who are we to think we're above doing that? We should wash one another's feet. We should serve each other. Well, the Lord, our Lord was not above suffering the world's hatred either. And we, as his servants, should not expect to escape that. It should also not surprise us when disciples are treating like, treated like their teachers because disciples end up like their teachers. We, we proclaim the same message that Jesus proclaimed, that same message that met with the hostility of the world, that provoked sinners, just like shining the light on those who would prefer to dwell in darkness is going to cause a reaction. You shine the light on the cockroaches and they all begin to buzz about uh, as the word of God is proclaimed. The same word meets with a similar response. As Jesus said in Matthew 10, 25, if they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? If they call the, the, the master of the house a devil, you think they're going to treat the rest of his household well? In verses 22 through 25, Jesus sp- speaks of how they had sinned by rejecting Christ. The world rejected Christ and, it's, and they sinned in doing so. They didn't just hate Christ, but in hating Christ, they also hated the one who sent him. Just as in hating Christ's people, you know, that it's connected with hating Christ, so hating Christ was connected with hating the Father, because the Father had sent the Son. And so even if they professed to serve God, as many of the Jews did, they had actually hated him by hating Jesus Christ. It's not like they would have been completely sinless if Jesus had not come. 
but they would not have been guilty of this sin. They were guilty of sin, of, a, of greater sin, the sin of rejecting Christ because Christ had come and they had rejected him. Their rejection of Christ, despite his words and works, was a grave sin. It demonstrated hatred of Jesus and his Father. The person who hears the gospel and rejects it is more guilty than the person who never heard it to begin with. And so that's a message for us to pay attention to the word that we have heard, to not forsake it, for we have been greatly privileged to hear the gospel that we might be saved. But those who hated Christ also fulfilled scripture. And he says that it fulfilled this this word written in the law, the law thinking of the whole Old Testament here, because the phrase comes from the Psalms, from Psalm 35, which we read earlier, and Psalm 69, which we had read a, a, a Sunday previous to this, because John had al- uh, Jesus had already quoted it in the Gospel of John. Um, both of them, the psalmist, originally written by David, uh, is, is suffering for righteousness' sake is suffering unjustly and is praying to God and notes that they hated me without a cause. These Psalms of David speak of suffering unjustly. They're not obviously messianic if you just read them for the first time. In fact, Psalm 69, even the psalmist confesses his wrongs that he had done. So that, of course, would not be applicable to Christ. And yet Jesus in experiencing this same hatred from the world, uh, that this was a fulfillment of Scripture. Christ suffered as the head and embodiment of his people, and he was the perfect embodiment of one who suffered unjustly, who was righteous and received this enmity of the world, which others like David had experienced previously. And as Jesus made plain, his church was to experience the reality described in these psalms as well as members of his body. And that's how we should, should sing the psalms too, as the body of Christ, as, as those who experience these things in him and interpret these things through him. So the world hated Jesus first. They hated Jesus without a cause, without any good cause. And so if they hated Jesus first, that's first of all a comfort to us to know that it's happened before. Uh, But it's also a reason to expect that this might come to pass, that as they hated Christ, that they would also hate Christ's people. Of course, John comes to this theme again in the book of Revelation, when there's a dragon. And the dragon goes after the child who is to be born, after Jesus. But when the dragon's not able to get the child who ascends to heaven, where does he turn? He seeks to wage war on the rest of the woman's offspring, on those who have faith in Jesus Christ and keep the commandments of God. And that is us. The second point is that you are not of the world, and that is why the world would hate you. The world loves its own, but you are not of the world. Verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. There is the world and there is the church. 
There's some people in one group, there's some people in another group. When Jesus saves a person, he brings that person out of the world and into his church, into his realm. There is fallen humanity, there is redeemed humanity. There is one that is of the flesh, of fallen human nature, and that is, which is regenerated by God, one which is of God. And so you are not of the world because Jesus chose you out of the world. You have been brought out of the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of Christ, if indeed you abide in Christ by faith. It is by his grace that anyone is saved from the world that is passing away. As Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. But it's because he has chosen his disciples and appointed them that they might bear fruit, that they are not of the world and therefore alien to the world and hated by the world as strangers to the world. The world here referring to that fallen humanity, not rocks and trees, but, but the wicked. Now, there should be, there is love among the world to some degree. Even there, uh, there's hatred and enmity, hating one another and hating uh, each other within the world. But, but to some degree, the, the world loves its own. But how much more should there be love among the church? Jesus had told the church to love one another as Christ had loved you. So you should love one another, but do not be surprised at hatred from the world. Those of the world listen to the world, but those of God listen to Christ. Now this even includes persecution from those who think they are serving God, and yet know not the Father nor the Son. The world would obviously include those who completely cast off all acknowledgement of God, who openly embrace a a wicked lifestyle and do so in an outrageous way. But it also would include those like some of the Pharisees who professed to serve the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and who held positions of religious authority and yet handed Christ over to be crucified and cast people out of the synagogue because they said Jesus was the Christ. They too were part of the world and not of God. Jesus says in chapter 16, They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. When Paul, when he was known as Saul, was persecuting the saints, he thought he was serving God. But yet he did not yet know the Father, nor the Son, while he remained hostile to Christ. And only when he believed in Christ did he truly serve God. So, the apostles and early Christians experienced this when they were cast out of the synagogue, when they suffered persecution, both from the Jews and then later from the Romans. Of course, Luther and the Reformers experienced this as well when they had to stand fast amid days in which uh, the Pope and others sided against the gospel and cast them out of their own churches. 
and yet they would stand by the truth of God's word and of Jesus Christ. Now there's one other significant point in this passage that we should not gloss over. In verses 26 through 27, that Jesus also tells his disciples that the Spirit and the apostles will bear witness to Christ. He says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. The Helper will bear witness about Christ, as will the apostles. Who is the Holy Spirit? He is the, the Helper, or the Comforter. That's uh, his one way he's described. This word it could be translated Comforter, or Helper, uh, one who gives aid and strength. Uh, he is sent for your good. He's given, not just given to the world, he's not just poured out, but he's given to you, to be your Comforter, to be your Helper, to aid and strengthen you. He's a person distinct from the Father and the Son, although they're one God, one divine being. And notice in this passage that while the word spirit is grammatically neuter in Greek, and so normally would take a neuter uh, pronoun like it rather than he or she, the Greek actually goes out of its way to use a masculine pronoun to say he. He will bear witness about me because he is a he. He is a person, uh, not merely a force or a power. The Spirit also, we learn, was sent at a particular time, and he proceeds. That's an ongoing present reality. There's a historical sent, and the present tense proceeds, uh, referring to two different things. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. That distinguishes him from the Son, from the Father and the Spirit. So the Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. We say this every Sunday, right? And the Creed. They're distinguished in that way. The Son is the Son of the Father. The Spirit is the Spirit of the Father and the Son. The term proceeds in the Creed comes from this verse, verse 26. Uh, just as the idea of begottenness comes from the Gospel of John, among other places as well that he proceeds from the Father. Now, the Eastern Church argues from this verse that the Spirit only proceeds from the Father, whereas we would pro profess, as we do every Sunday, that he proceeds from the Father and the Son. Of course, for it to say that he proceeds from the Father doesn't exclude the possibility that he also proceeds from the Son. We find elsewhere in Scripture that not only is he called the Spirit of the Father, but also the Spirit of his Son like in Galatians 4, 6, and that's one reason why we say from the Father and the Son. But in any, you know, but, and so it's appropriate to say that the, the Spirit proceeds from them both. But he has always proceeded from the Father and the Son, but Jesus says, I will send him from the Father to be among you, to be in you, to give him to you, to be a comforter, to be the Spirit of truth to bear witness to the truth, to bear witness to me, to bear witness to Christ, even though the world may hate Christ, that the Spirit will bear witness to Christ. And not only that, but you who have this Spirit, who have been with me, will also bear witness to me. That's especially referring to the apostles, because I wasn't with Christ from the beginning, but the Apostle Peter was, uh, the Apostle John was, and they will bear witness to 
Christ and his teachings and his resurrection, which they heard, which they saw with their own eyes, which they would record then in their message, and which we would have recorded in Scripture. The Spirit would work with the apostles to call these things to their memory and to vindicate it by the miracles that they worked, bearing witness to this message. And so now we have the Spirit-inspired apostolic writings of the New Testament that bear witness to Christ. The Spirit is given to every member of Christ's body, even today. First John he says that we have been given his spirit, and that's not just to the apostles, but to the whole church. And the spirit helps us to understand scripture. The spirit impresses these things upon us, draws us to Christ, and strengthens us in him. And so we are not left alone amid the hatred of the world. Christ gives us the spirit to strengthen us, to hold us fast to Christ. Jesus warns you of the world's hatred for your good, that you would not fall away when you encounter it, when someone ridicules you or mocks you or reviles you for your faith, that you would stand firm. This is a division that dates back to the garden when God placed enmity between the serpent and the woman, between his seed and her seed. It's good to be on God's side, to be born from above, to be with Christ rather than the devil. But there are sides. So pray that God would destroy Satan's kingdom and advance the kingdom of grace, bringing ourselves and others in it and keeping us in it, despite the hatred of the world. Do not budge, but pray for boldness, that you might stand by your Lord through thick and thin to the end, that having followed him through trials, you might also follow him into heavenly glory by his grace. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Let us pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would help us and strengthen us, that we might stand fast and bear witness that even other sinners would be taken out of the world and its fallen ways of lust and pride and rebellion, and rather to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would grant us perseverance, that you would overcome the evil one, and that uh, you would uh, keep us in this way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.